Apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So I've been real eager uh, to get into 1 Timothy with you. I was pretty much certain we were going to 1 Timothy even before Esther. And I know you guys just finished 1 Timothy in Sunday school, right? So you might feel like you already know it. But I was going to go to 1 Timothy first before Lifeway sent those books. So um, either way, you might feel like you've got a good grasp on it because you've been coming to Sunday school and learning about 1 Timothy. We're going to make sure you know it even better. But before we uh, dive right in, I want to make a few things. If you're not familiar with this letter, if you're not familiar with the New Testament in general, this is a letter. We call this a letter, a specific type of letter, a pastoral letter. Uh, all of these uh, different sections in our Bible we like to call books, but there's different genres, right? This one is literally a letter, and, and that means exactly what you think it means. You know, my name is X, written to X, you know, dear so-and-so, let me give you some content, you know, signed Paul. Uh, so this is a letter written to usually a church, but today an individual. Almost every letter is written to a church in the New Testament, uh, but this one is written to an individual, hence the name Timothy. Timothy, right? Um, also, you should know that all these letters take place after Jesus' death burial, and resurrection. This is post-gospel. Jesus has ascended back into the heavens, has initiated a church to be built, and this is what has taken place after. Um, so we're writing to Timothy this morning. Eddie likes to call me Timothy sometimes. I'm not sure if he knows my name is Dale, but uh, we, we get to talk about Timothy, who, who is a, a younger pastor, uh, this is a very unique letter. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy two times, and this is his first letter, probably around 62 A.D., uh, which is about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Uh, so this is probably in between jail time for Paul. Not exactly sure where he is. Most people say maybe in the Macedonia uh, area, but 62 A.D., Paul writing to Timothy. Another thing you need to know about this letter before we dive in is that this is God's Word. This is God's Word. When we read the words in 1 Timothy, we can know with absolute certainty that this is God's inspired, revealed, Holy Spirit-given Word. This isn't just an intimate letter from one guy to another. This is God's Word, active and sharp, useful for our lives, transcending across generations, kept through time so that we can live godly lives in Christ Jesus and continue to hear from God. 
Now, here's what I want to propose is perhaps the purpose of this letter, the reason it was written. Paul says pretty explicitly, I think I've got the verse on the screen for you, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So for the next couple months, if that's why Paul wrote this letter, along with some other things he wants to say, God is going to be therefore speaking to us about right behavior in the household of God. The living God instituted his church through the foundation laid on Jesus Christ that we would be a pillar and buttress of truth. The Holy Spirit revealed this right behavior to Paul. Paul wrote it for Timothy and for his leadership to take place in Ephesus. And now the Lord is speaking to us on how we might be a pillar of truth in a world full of myths and speculations. His primary concern seems to be false teaching. If you've read the book, uh, you know, you've been in Sunday school. He mentions uh, in First and Second Timothy six individuals by name who fell away from the faith who fell into these blasphemous myths and speculations. But he's also going to teach us on the necessity of evangelism, how to share the gospel and why it's primary in our Christian lives. He's going to teach us about proper behavior in corporate worship gatherings, when the church meets together and how we should behave. The right motives and qualifications of church leaders, elders, overseers, and deacons. Uh, how Christians ought to relate to one another in the body and our personalities and our characteristics and love towards each other. And the importance of protecting and fighting for the purity of the gospel unto death, if that's what it calls for. I don't know about you, but I'd like to learn about those things. So we're going to be in First Timothy. And you've seen the graphic, right? Uh, I think it kind of boils down to this statement. Here's how to be a church shaped by the gospel. Here's how to be a church shaped by the gospel. Christ purchased you on the cross, bore your sins, rose from the dead, claiming you as his own, making you his treasured possession. What should this new life then look like? How are we to operate in light of this gospel? This is the message Paul would give to Timothy and Timothy then to the church. And we're only covering the first two verses, right? Uh, to get us started, I think we need to do some character surveying. Kind of like when you start watching a good movie, they kind of set up all the different characters of the movie so you can understand their background and their personality and their, their careers, their job, whatever. You know, you want to see who that character is. We've got some characters here today. Three, I would say. Paul, an apostle, is the first one. The second is Timothy, a faith child. And the last is the church, a people of grace, mercy, and peace. So let's start with our first character, a guy named Paul. What does verse 1 say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Who is Paul? Well, he first wants the reader to know that he identifies himself as what? As an apostle of Christ. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Nine of those letters begin with this identification, 
apostle of Christ Jesus. We throw around the words apostles and disciples a lot, and we kind of forget, I think, what they mean and what the differences are. Did Jesus have 12 disciples or 12 apostles? Kind of a trick question, right? In the moment that Jesus called them to follow him, they were disciples. They were followers of Jesus, learning how to follow Jesus. Trainees, mentees, students, protégés, learning how to live the Christian life in that moment. They were learning the ropes of gospel living, how to follow him. But then Jesus went to the cross to die for his followers, saying that another one is coming, a helper, who's, uh, you, you're going to want him more than, than you want me. And he rose from the dead, sending his Holy Spirit. And in that charge, as he rose from the dead, saying, All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and now make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know how it goes. This was their graduation from disciple to apostle with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Apostleship has two inferences or two meanings. It means authority and it means commissioning. Okay? Authority and commissioning. Paul's saying, I am an apostolos of Christ. I have the authority of Christ and the commissioning of Christ. He himself writes with the authority and the commission of Jesus. He sent me. He gave me his authority to see that this job is done. And this is what elevates this simple letter to the inspired word of God. That we can call it scripture rather than a nice quaint letter written to somebody. If you go and read Acts 9, you learn about this man's God-given authority and commissioning. He wasn't always an apostle. He wasn't even one of the original 12. He was a Jewish soldier of sorts hating, persecuting, and killing Christians. He was even standing nearby watching as Stephen, one of the church's first deacons, was stoned to death by the Jews. But as this man, formerly known as Saul, went on, it says, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ, he found himself one day on a road with a few other men going to a town called Damascus. You guys know this story. Some of y'all probably know Paul better than you do Jesus, right? We talk about Paul a lot in the church. Well, what happened to Paul? He heard an audible voice from heaven as they were walking, saying his name was then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was the risen Jesus Christ speaking to this Jewish murderer. Jesus blinds him and tells him to rise and enter into Damascus. All the men around are walking with his hand, speechless, not understanding what in the world is going on. And they go to the city. And he was without sight for three days, and neither ate nor drank. He, arose, he arrived in uh, Damascus. He, meet, he met a man named Ananias, uh, who also had an intervention with Christ. Ananias uh, was basically supposed to give him this message, saying... He is a chosen instrument of mine. This is from the mouth of Christ. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This was Paul's conversion from death to life, from blindness to sight, as the scales removed from his eyes and he saw the Son of God. And so he would do just that. He began to preach immediately after his baptism to Jews, Gentiles, and kings. 
He was forever changed, made alive with Christ, and was given the authority of Christ and a commission that needed to be fulfilled. He became an apostle. An apostle. Now I'll remind you that we are not apostles today. We are certainly disciples, and we certainly have the strength of Christ to fulfill the Great Commission and make more disciples, but we have not been given divine authority from on high to such extent that we can add to the biblical canon, okay? You start writing letters and saying, you know, this is what God told me, we're going to have some problems, because that's not how it works. You are joining a, a heretical club if you begin to do that. When it comes to the apostolic characteristics of authority and commissioning, however, we can certainly take on basic Christian principles if we are in the church, especially if we are leaders in the church. Here's what I mean by that. Working in our own authority, right, rather than the authority of God, will lead to death. And ignoring our commission that we've been given from God will lead to stagnancy, if not a likely death. Notice how Paul speaks of his apostleship in verse 1. By the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul was powerfully motivated in his calling and his work by two great truths. What are they? First, God, our Savior, commanded me. I was commanded by God. It's one thing to say you know Jesus, ain't it? It's another thing entirely to say that you've accepted his word and you're doing it no matter what. A lot of people know Jesus. Few have heard the command of our God and Savior and have been willing to follow. Of course, though, we shouldn't see our God as just a commander, somebody who just demands things of us. I love Paul's phrasing here, God our what? God our Savior. God our Savior. Not only does he recognize that he's the righteous, law-making, command-giving, authority-bearing ruler of the world, he's God, the only God, but he's also Savior. To be rightly motivated into the work of ministry, we must see our God as both the sovereign ruler of the earth and the Savior of souls. The one who came into the world not only is he God, but he also gave us the sacrificial blood of his son to save us unto a life of peace and mended the gap that once stood between us and our maker. If you're not motivated to be a doer of his word purely because who he is, how about what he did, right? He deserves our worship. He deserves our obedience just because he's God. But look at what he's done, he gave us his one and only son. He saved us when we were headed toward hell. He stopped us, as he did Paul, showered grace over our lives, and saved us from ourselves. And after what he's done in shedding his own blood for sinners, why wouldn't we follow? Why wouldn't we be obedient? This is our motivation. He's our God. He's our Savior. Here's the second motivation. For Paul, Jesus, our hope, right? Christ Jesus, our hope. The word for hope is el peace. It expresses expectation, trust, and confidence. It is the anticipation of what is sure and certain. Not how we use the word hope in our English language. We use hope like blind believing, like a wish that you really want to come true. But Jesus ain't a wish. Jesus is reality. 
He came, he lived, and he died. A real bodily life and a real bodily death and a real bodily resurrection. He rose from the dead in glorious victory and triumphant reign, and he said that he's going to prepare a place for us to intercede for our sins daily and steadily sanctify us until the day he returns. And when he returns, all our work will be made known. We will see him as he is. We will be made like him. We will inherit the new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. Satan will be cast out forever along with hell itself. And the sinners that heard the gospel through us will be there when the roll is called on that glad reunion day. That's not a wish. That's reality. Like that's going to happen. And so that's hope. That presses us on to the work of the ministry, knowing that Jesus is real. This ain't just a made-up thing that we hope is going to happen. The day is drawing near, says Hebrews 10. Therefore, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's going to do it. So let's keep to the plow. We ought to feel the weight of Paul's words as an apostle and feel the same weight that we have as children of God who've been commanded by the God and Savior of all hope. One of Paul's charges was to make disciples, wasn't it? To preach to Gentiles and Jews and kings. One of the people he met along his discipleship journey was a young man named Timothy, a faith child, a faith child. Let's look at verse 2 now, this, this person who he's been discipling for years at the time of this letter. Verse 2 says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now listen, we know more about Paul than we do about Timothy, just to be honest. Paul wrote a whole lot more. We don't have any of Timothy's pen. But we do know some things about how they met and what Paul has to say about Timothy. In the beginning of Acts chapter 16, you might go look it up later, Paul and Barnabas separate and Paul heads to a town called Lystra. Okay, In Lystra, there lived a disciple whose name was Timothy. He came from a blended family. His mother was a Jewish Christian. His father was a Greek, unlikely a believer. He was spoken well of by the believers in that town, and Paul immediately loved Timothy. He took him with the rest of his missionary journeys, even circumcised Timothy. They got to know each other real quick. They traveled to Macedonia, Thessalonica, and Asia. Timothy ended up staying in Asia at the church in Ephesus, which is where Paul is writing to him in this letter. Ephesus was a rough port city, but also wealthy and highly influential. A well-known region in that area for something called the Temple of Artemis, where false gods would be both produced and worshipped. In this town, it was a messy church with hard beginnings, but Timothy was devoted to stay and lead this church as long as it took, even though Paul certainly wanted him to continue on in those missionary journeys. Well, here's what Paul himself says about Timothy. First of all, they co-wrote a few of these letters together, uh, like Thessalonians and Philippians. If you go and read verse 1, I guarantee you Timothy's name is there in the introduction. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul sends Timothy to get a report from the church and describes Timothy in this way. He says, Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you 
in the faith. Here's what he says about Timothy in Philippians 2. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And there are two letters to Timothy. So at the, uh, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks of him even more about this faith. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. There's three passages. We get a pretty good picture of who this Timothy is and why Paul loves him so dearly. A brother a co-worker in the gospel, someone capable of establishing and exhorting others in the gospel message, a preacher, someone genuinely concerned about the welfare of the church, a shepherd, a son in the gospel who he saw as his own child, a sincere faith that brought Paul to tears when he thought about him in his prayers, someone who just plain brings him joy when they are together. Paul loved Timothy. And all these things come together in this first statement, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Even though I just read all those scriptures describing Timothy, if you grew up in church, what's the one thing you know about Timothy, right? Ain't he pretty young? Ain't he like a young kid or something? Ain't he young? Yeah, I mean, probably. (laughs) Probably the only verse you have memorized out of this book is 1 Timothy 4.11, right? Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, right? Because you're youth. Well, Paul first met Timothy around A.D. 47 in Lystra. This letter was written about A.D. 62-63. So about 15 years or 16 years have gone by since they first met. Most scholars who are trustworthy place Timothy about the age of 35, mid-30s at the time that this letter was written. So 16 years earlier when they met, he might have been about 20 years old when he was in Lystra and Paul just loved him to death and said, I'm going to take this guy everywhere I go. So he's been discipling him for years and years and years. Something else you might know about Timothy is that he had occasional IBS, right? According to First uh, Timothy 5.23, he, he had some tummy issues, Okay. Uh, He also struggles with conflict. He had to fan into flame his gift of the gospel. He he sometimes appears to be timid based on Paul's writings. So we have two pictures of Timothy. One is the voracious preacher of the gospel who's going to do no matter what for sound doctrine to be preached in the church. And the other is like this young kid who's timid, right, and has tummy problems. So so which which one is it? Well, I think we we want to recognize Timothy had his fair share of weaknesses, and that made him all the more useful as a minister of the gospel, especially in a hard church. God loves to use weak people to display his glory, which is why Paul rejoiced in his own weaknesses, and why I rejoice in my weaknesses, and why I hope you rejoice in your weaknesses, because through our weaknesses, God is seen as the strong one. Paul was sending this guy from church to church to build him up like an experienced church health consultant, and yet he was this younger guy who was sometimes timid. 
He had a sincere, unmovable faith, a firm hold on right doctrine, but he was young, came from a blended family, Jewish and, and, and Gentile. That would have caused problems for some people. He wasn't what you would think. Uh, you know, he's kind of almost the opposite of Paul in a way, right? Paul is like this bulldog for the gospel, and Timothy is this young, timid person. But the biggest point here is that Paul loved him as his own son, his child in the faith, he says. And he might as well been his own because that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? It makes us family. When we're shaped by the gospel, we see other Christians as family members. We see other Christians as opportunities for discipleship. When I became a member at Main Street, I instantly gained a whole bunch of moms and dads and brothers and sisters and a few sons of my own, I think. As we consider Paul and Timothy's relationship, it brings our mind to one last character in this letter, and that last character is actually a group of people called the church. The church, a people of grace, mercy, and peace. And we see the church almost pictured in their love for one another. He gives him a triple blessing here, doesn't he? A triple blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What I want to show you real quickly at the end of this is, is how these three introductory blessings spell out the gospel-shaped ministry or the gospel-shaped church. Grace, mercy, and peace. Let's start with grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor from God. Grace is incredible kindness extended towards another person. A gift, a blessing just because, regardless of their actions and their behavior. Do we know anything about grace as Christians? Do we know anything about grace? I hope you know something about grace if you're a Christian. Has not the Father freely given His one and only Son because He so loved us? What merit have we to give to the Father for this great gift? Why has he initiated grace with sinners? Why has he extended salvation to the prisoners, the adulterers, and the drunkards, the people who don't deserve it? Why has he done this? Why has God shown favor to this wicked generation that, like Paul, breathes threats against his church and his kingdom? Why has he stopped us and intervened when we were happily and hastily and greedily barreling towards hell? Why? Because grace, because grace, grace has been poured out for those who believe and because we've been shown grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we shower one another with that same grace. How did Paul learn to greet Timothy like this? Because he knew something about grace. He was stopped on his way to hell and was given the free gift of salvation. And so how do we entreat one another? With grace, a gospel-shaped church is overwhelmingly giving of grace. We are constantly offering grace to one another. You know, I'll share a story with you. Being a, a minister, being a pastor is often heartbreaking. Being in ministry, I think for anybody, is often heartbreaking. 
you have to deal with a lot of folks who, for lack of a better word, are just flaky. They're there in one minute, and they're gone the next. Some come, and they get what they need, and then they disappear. We give, and we give, and we give, and we give. We pour out more and more and more grace. And it's just heartbreaking when some folks just walk away. In an individual circumstance that happened right here in our church, someone asked me, Pastor Dale, why do you keep trying with that individual? Why are you still reaching out to them? Why are you still trying to pursue a relationship with them? Why are you still trying? They keep walking away. They won't commit. They don't love you like you love them. How and why do you keep at it? The bottom line is grace. The bottom line is grace. Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me that he died on Calvary. But in my years of wandering, spurning the good gifts of grace, he was giving me and ignoring every gospel message I ever heard, I finally realized the free grace that I was being given. And my hope for those folks who are flaky and break my heart sometimes every week, I pray that they will look back and see the grace that was offered and be reminded of Christ who offers an infinitely greater grace. This is how a gospel-shaped church operates. You don't love me first, then I give you grace. That's what separates a gospel-shaped church from a dead church. But not only have we been shown grace, we've also been shown mercy, right? Grace, mercy, and peace. Mercy is different from grace because it focuses on pity, compassion, and concern. It is helping the helpless, fathering the orphan, caring for the widow. And again, do we know anything about mercy? Have we been helped when we were helpless? Have we been given a father when we were Orphans, Do we say like David, who are we that the Lord takes thought for us or that he is mindful of me? And yet he saw us in our darkness, all of our sin stains and failures. And though we deserved his wrath, his patient compassion led him to act on mercy instead. Our merciful Father sent the Son into the world clothed in human flesh and He constantly, while He was here, took mercy on tax collectors and drunkards and sinners and prostitutes and all the sorts. He felt compassion for their lostness. He saw them as blind people who could not cross the road to get to God. And our Father brought grace and mercy together at the cross. We received in that moment both favor from God as well as compassion in our helpless time of need. Let me share another one with you, a time when I saw mercy. I was in college working part-time. Mariana and I were dating, and we were doing the school thing. She was, you know, getting valedictorian or whatever. I was trying to pass my classes. And uh, we were at the coffee shop one night studying and uh, had a test the next morning. And so it was like probably 8.30 in the evening. We're out at this uh, coffee shop trying to study. And I get a phone call. Uh, It's a guy from our church. His name's Levi. 
Levi calls and says, hey, Dale, uh, you know Ross, right? I said, yeah, I know Ross. What's up? What's going on? He says, well, Ross owns this cleaning business for schools and uh, offices. They clean at night while nobody's there. And his staff, unfortunately, is not always very reliable. Sometimes they don't show up, and he has to go and, and do their work when they, when they don't show up. So Levi calls me at 8.30 at night on a weeknight, informing me that Ross has called him and is in quite a predicament. He has an entire middle school to clean, and nobody showed up. He's there by himself, an entire middle school. And he says, so you ready to go clean the middle school? And I was like, uh, well, <laughs> uh, as much fun as mopping floors and changing trash cans sounds all night long, I have this test in the morning, you know, and I have to study, and I don't know if, if, if I can help. He said, yeah, well, I'm just getting my kids to bed, and I've got to work at 7 a.m. Okay, well, <laughs> Mariana, you want to come? <laughs> so we hop in the car, we go to the middle school, we set up all night cleaning at the middle school. You remember that, right? And I had seen a picture of mercy that I'd never seen before. Ross was helpless, and the church flew to flight to give mercy to a brother in need. Regardless of how he got there, regardless of how it happened, I had never seen or felt mercy like that night. Pity, compassion, concern, my friend who called me had so much mercy in that moment. I was hypnotized, and there was only one answer, and that was, I'll be there. And you know what? I don't remember the test the next day. I don't even remember what class I was taking. It is unimportant. But I will remember that picture of mercy forever. This is the kind of mercy that a gospel-shaped church will pursue. Finally, we also pursue peace. There is a present reality of peace for a gospel-shaped church because we've been impacted by both grace and mercy, right? We've come into contact with those things, and so God has given this present shalom, this present peace, wholeness, fullness, rest. And so I'll say to the people of God here today, do you know anything about peace? Do you know anything about peace? Because of the grace and mercy offered in the gospel, we have been given a peace that this world knows very little about. Even through the chaos of life, we have a sustaining peace with our Father. Paul knew this peace well and was therefore able to greet Timothy with the very peace of God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord and our hope. This is just the beginning of a gospel-shaped church. We're going to learn how to do this more and more, better and better. But I encourage you today to be the kind of people that are constantly greeting one another in a spirit of grace, mercy, and peace. This, again, is what separates churches from clubs full of dead people. This is what makes us family, not Sunday morning acquaintances, which is why I try to address you as family as often as I can. It's no coincidence that Paul doesn't just greet Timothy in this way, but also calls him my true child in the faith. 
They have a mutual grace. They have a mutual mercy. They have a mutual peace. And it makes them bonded like pure blood. They're family because of what Christ has done. Do you know how God has made us a family? Do you know how that has occurred? That we, Paul and Timothy's today, can interact with one another in this type of way? Do you really know what took place 2,000 years ago that has made letters like this a reality and churches like Main Street a reality? Here's how it happened. The son of the father stepped down into earth, left the presence of his father, left the presence of his dad, entered into a lowly manger away from his heavenly throne. This was the father's only son with whom he was well pleased who was righteous in every way, perfect, blameless. And he went to this earth as an orphan from his own father and continued to roam this earth with his own brothers rejecting him, mocking him, calling him names, rejecting him in his own hometown and went to a cross made not for children, not for perfect sons, but a cross made for rebels, a cross made for the type of children who get up and leave and hate their mother. And yet, this was our cross. And our orphaned Savior went to the cross so that we who were enemies of God could be called children of God, could be called sons and daughters, could be called children of the faith. This is only for people who have been bought and purchased by this blood, who have been changed and redeemed and made to be called children of God. Is this you this morning? Have you been impacted by grace, mercy, and peace made only available through the one way, the cross of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life? I want to give you an invitation before we go any further in this book. This is not going to make any sense to you. You are not going to have any idea how to be a gospel-shaped church full of grace, mercy, and peace unless you know the Son, Jesus Christ, and His righteousness credited to your account, your sin put on His cross and remembered in the grave no more. We're going to have a time now where we can respond to the word that we've heard this morning. If you want to... Be a disciple maker who's going after your brothers and sisters in the church to disciple them as Paul was Timothy and having this, this great love language among us as a gospel-shaped church. I want you to, to pray now in this moment to, to, to sing loudly that we might commit our ways and our family uh, to him and to his glory and to his gospel. Uh, I'm going to invite our musicians to come forward. I'm also going to invite Steve to come forward and pray for us as they get in their place, Steve is going to pray for us as we close out the sermon, and we're going to sing. When he's done, let's stand together.
Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.